Hello everyone. I want to tell you the full story of my departure from religion. Church and Christianity. This will be the first of the last episodes that I do without faith. And I'll definitely take my break after the episode for tomorrow. That'll be my religion break for I don't know how long. But I'm almost finished without rushing, without rushing, I, I say again. When it comes to healing all the faith-based related wounds of my life. So I'm going to explain all the reasons, all the stories that are left over that I did not share, and a little bit more of the old things I shared that I knew, some new perspectives on why I left the world of piety. Here we go. Listverse.com, religion, April 13, 2019. 10 Christ-like figures who predate Jesus by Rush Band. Fact-checked fact checked by Alex Hanton. I recently watched the documentary Zayat Jazz, part one, as well as Bill Maher's movie Religious. Both made mentions of claims often made that there are many stories that predate Jesus but have striking parallels. I decided to follow up on this claim to see what kind of information was out there to substantiate these assertions. I found several websites run by Christians who obviously disputed all claims of any parallels to the life of Jesus. I also found several interesting books on the subject, such as The World 16, Crucified Saviors, Christianity Before Christ by Kersey Graves, and The Christ Conspiracy and the Sons of God, Krishna, Buddha, and Christ Unveiled by R. Karya S. As a non-Christian, I'm approaching this topic purely as an interested observer. I'm assuming half the people who read this will automatically say the claims are false and the other half will say they are true. The truth I found is that it's difficult to know for sure. Here are 10 of the figures often cited. 10, number 10, Buddha. Both went to their temples at the age of 12 where they are said to have astonished all with their wisdom. Both supposedly fast in solitude for a long time, Buddha for 47 days and Jesus for 40. Both wanted to a fig tree at the conclusion of their fast. Both were about the same age when they began their public ministry. When he, Buddha, went again to the garden, he saw a monk who was calm, tranquil, self-possessed, serene, and dignified. The prince determined to become such a monk was led to make the great renunciation. At the time he was 29 years of age, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 23. Both were tempted by the quote unquote devil at the beginning of their ministry. The Buddha, he said, Go not forth to adopt a religious life, but return to your kingdom, and in seven days you shall become emperor of the world, riding over the four continents. To Jesus, he said, All these kingdoms of the world I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, Buddha answered the devil, get you away from me. Jesus responded, be gone, Satan. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, both strove to establish a kingdom of heaven on earth. According to the Samadeva, a Buddhist holy book, a Buddhist 
ascetics, I want to offend him, so he plucked out and cast away. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Number 9, Krishna. According to Bhagavata Purana, some believe that Krishna was born without a sexual union by a quote-unquote mental transmission from the mind of Vasudeva into the womb of Devaki, his mother. Christ and Krishna were called both God and the Son of God. Both were sent from heaven to earth in the form of a man. Both were called Savior and the second person of the Trinity. Krishna's adoptive human father was also a carpenter. A spirit or a ghost was their actual father. Krishna and Jesus were of royal descent. Both were visited at birth by wise men and shepherds guided by a star. Angels in both cases issued a warning that the local dictator planned to kill the baby and had issued a decree for his assassination. The parents fled. Mary and Joseph stayed in Muturia. Krishna's parents stayed in Mathura. Both Christ and Krishna withdrew to the wilderness as adults and fasted. Both were identified as, quote unquote, the seed of the woman bruising the serpent's head. Jesus was called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Krishna was called the Lion of the tribe of Saki. Both claim I am the resurrection. Both were, both were, quote unquote, without sin. Both were God men being considered both human and divine. Both performed many miracles, including the healing of disease. One of the first miracles that both performed was to make a leper whole. Each cured, quote unquote, all manner of diseases. Both cast out indwelling demons and raised the dead. Both selected disciples to spread his teachings. Both were meek and merciful. Both were criticized for associating with sinners. Both celebrated a last supper. Both forgave his enemies. Both were crucified and both were resurrected. Eight, Odysseus. Homeric tales about Odysseus Homeric tales about Odysseus emphasize his suffering life, just as in Mark, Jesus said that he too would suffer greatly. Odysseus is a carpenter like Jesus, and he wants to return his home, just as Jesus wants to be welcomed in his native home, and later to God's home in Jerusalem. Odysseus is plagued with unfaithful and dim-witted companions who display tragic flaws. They stupidly open a magic bag of wind while Odysseus sleeps and release terrible tempests which prevent their return home. These sailors are comparable to Jesus' disciples who disbelieve Jesus, ask foolish questions, and show general ignorance about everything. It's amazing that either Odysseus or Jesus ever managed to accomplish anything, given the companions they have, but it simply demonstrates the power and ability of the one true leader who has a divine mandate to lead the people out of darkness into a brighter future. Number seven, Romulus. Romulus is born of a Vestal Virgin, which was a priestess of the heart god Vesta sworn to celibacy. His mother claims that the divine impregnated her, yet this is not believed by the king. Romulus and his twin brother Remus are tossed in the river and left for dead. A slaughter of the innocence's tale, which parallels that of Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. Romulus is held as the son of God. He is quote unquote snatched away to heaven by a whirlwind. It is assumed that the gods took him and he makes post-mortem appearances in his work, Numa Pompilius. Plutarch records that there was a darkness covering the earth before his death. Just as there was during Jesus' death, 
according to Mark chapter 15, verse 33. He also states that Romulus is to be known afterwards as Orarinus, a god which belongs to the archaic triad, a triple deity similar to the concept of the Trinity. Six, Dionysus. Dionysus was born of a virgin that the holy child was placed in a manger. He was a traveling teacher who performed miracles. He was a traveling teacher who performed miracles. He quote unquote rode in a triumphal procession on an ass. He was a sacred king killed and eaten in an Eucharistic ritual for few Sunday and purification. Dionysus rose from the dead on March 25th. He was the god of the vine and turned water into wine. He was called king of kings and god of gods. He was considered the only begotten son, savior, redeemer, sin bearer, anointed one in the alpha and omega. He was identified with the ram or lamb. The sacrificial title of quote unquote dendrites or quote unquote young man of the tree, quote unquote intimate, intimates he was hung on a tree and, or crucified. Five, Heracles. Heracles is the son of a god, Zeus. He's recorded that Zeus is both the father and great, great, great grandfather, Heracles. This is Jesus essentially his own grandpa being both quote unquote the root and offspring of David. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, as he is part of the triune God, which is the father of Adam and eventually of Jesus, both are doubly related to the supreme God. Diodorus writes that quote unquote, for as regards the magnitude of the deeds which he accomplished, it is generally agreed that Heracles has been handed down as one who surpassed all men of whom memory from the beginning of time has brought down an account. Consequently, it is a difficult attainment to report each one of his deeds in a worthy manner and to present a record which shall be on a level of labor so great the magnitude of which won for him the prize of immortality. Jesus is also said to have done a very large number of good works. John chapter 21 verse 25 says that, quote unquote, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Hera tries to kill Heracles as an infant by sending two serpents after him, yet Heracles survives by strangling him. This parallels Herod's slaughter of the innocents in, its, in an attempt to kill Jesus, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. Heracles makes a descent into Hades and returns from the Theseus in Parathelus, just as Jesus descends into the lower parts of the earth, in quotations, or Hades, or Hades, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Though Jesus does not bring anyone up from it, Heracles' body is not found and he's assumed to have been taken by the gods. After this one, the pains of Lalias' came together of the bones of Heracles and found not a single bone anywhere. They assumed that in accordance with the words of the oracle, he had passed from among men as the company of the gods. Number four, Glycan. In the middle of the 100s AD, out along the south coast of the Black Sea, Glycan was the son of the god Apollo, who came to Earth through a miraculous birth, was the earthly manifestation of divinity, came to with the fulfillment of divine prophecy, gave his sheep believe the power of prophecy. 
gave believers the power to speak in tongues, perform miracles, heal the sick, and raise the dead. Three, Zar Roaster slash Zarathustra. Zarathustra was born of a virgin in immaculate conception by a ray of divine reason. He was baptized in a river and his youth he astounded wise men with his wisdom. He was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He began his ministry at age 30. The raster baptized with water, fire, and quote holy wind. He cast out demons and restored the sight to a blind man. He taught about heaven and hell and revealed mysteries, including resurrection, judgment, salvation, and the apocalypse. He had a sacred cup or grail. He was slain. His religion had a Eucharist. He was the word made flesh. Zoraster's father suspected the second coming in the virgin born. Zyophis the Savior, who was to come before the winter, he began his ministry at age 30, ushering in a golden age. To Attis of Phrygia, Phrygia. Attis was born on December 25th of the Virgin Nana. He was considered the Savior who was slain for salvation of mankind. His body, his bread, was eaten by his worshippers. He spoke of the divine Son and the Father. On Black Friday, he was crucified on a tree from which his holy blood ran down to redeem the earth. He descended into the world, he descended into the underworld. After three days, Attis was resurrected. And lastly, number one, Horus. Born of virgin Isis, only begotten son of the god Osiris, birth heralded by the star Sirius, the morning star, ancient Egyptians created a manger and child representing Horus through the streets at the time of the winter solstice about DEC 21. In reality, he had no birth date. He was not a human. Death threat during infancy. Herod tried to have Horus murdered, handling the threat to God that tells Horus' mother, Come thou, goddess Isis, hide thyself from the child. The angel tells Jesus, his father, to arise and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Breaking life history, no data between age of 12 and 30, age of baptism 30. Subsequent fate of the baptizers, beheaded, walked on water, cast out demons, healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, was crucified, sent into hell, resurrected after three days. So that's one of the reasons why I've always struggled with the concept of Jesus being God by me doing that research and I have to tell this truth. I also have struggled with the concept of Jesus being God when it comes to this article. I did it before, but after the article I just did, you understand more of why I did this episode, and you'll remember. This is April 7th, 2014, here on FreshAirNPR.org. If Jesus never called himself God, how did he become one? When Bart Ehrman was a young evangelical Christian, he wanted to know how God became a man, but now as an agnostic and story of early Christianity, he wants to know how a man became God. When and why did Jesus' followers start saying Jesus is God? And what do they mean by that? His new book is called How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. In this book, I actually do not take a stand on either the question of whether Jesus is God, or whether he was actually raised from the dead, Ehrman tells Fresh Airs as Terry Gross. I leave open both questions because those are theological questions based on religious beliefs, and I'm writing the book as a historian. Ehrman is the author of several books about other Christianity, including misquoting Jesus and Jesus Interrupted. 
interview highlights on the major guests between the first three gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the last gospel, John. During his lifetime, Jesus himself didn't call himself God, didn't consider himself God, and none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. You do find Jesus calling himself God in the Gospel of John in the last Gospel. Jesus says things like, Before Abraham was, I am, and I am the Father of one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These are all statements you find only in the Gospel of John. That's striking because we have earlier Gospels and we have the writings of Paul, and in none of them is there any indication that Jesus said such things. I think it's completely impossible that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not mention that Jesus called himself God if that's what he's declaring about himself. That would be a rather important point to make that if this is not an unusual view among scholars, it simply would be that the Gospel of John is providing a theological understanding of Jesus that is not what was historically accurate on how Roman emperors were called God. Right at the same time the Christians were calling Jesus God, is exactly when Romans started calling the emperors God. So these questions, so these Christians were not doing this in a vacuum. They're actually doing it in a context. I don't think this could be an accident. This is a point at which the emperors are being called God. So by calling Jesus God, in fact, it was a competition between the God, the emperor, and our God, Jesus. When Constantine the emperor then converted to Christianity, it changed everything because now rather than the emperor being God, the emperor was the worshiper of the god Jesus. That was quite a forceful change, and one could argue that it changed the understanding of religion and politics for all time. On the emergence of the Trinity, Christians had a dilemma since they declared that Christ is God. If Christ is God and God the Father is God, doesn't that make two gods? And when you throw the whole spirit to the mix, doesn't that make three gods? So aren't Christians polytheists? Christians wanted to insist no. They're monotheists. Well, if they're monotheists, how can all three be God? So there are various ways of trying to explain this. One of the most popular ways is called modalism. It's called modalism because it insists that God exists in three modes. Oh, it's modalism. Let me say that again. So there are various ways of trying to explain this. One of the most popular ways is called modalism. It's called modalism because it insists that God exists in three modes. Just, uh, just I myself at the same time as I'm a son, a brother, and a father. There's only one of me. Well, these theologians say that's what God is like. He, he's manifesting three persons, but there's only one of him. So he's at the same time father, son, and spirit. So he's in three modes of existence, so there's only one of him. On the difference between history and the past, what I try to teach my students is that history is not the past. There are a lot of things in the past that we cannot show historically. For example, you simply cannot show what my grandfather ate on March 23rd, 1956. I mean, he ate something for lunch that day, I'm sure. There's the, but there's no way we have access to it. So it's in the past, but it's not part of history. History is what we can show to have happened in the past. One of the things that historians cannot show is having happened in the past and anything that's miraculous. Because to believe that a miracle has happened, to believe that God has done something in our world, requires a person to believe in God. It requires a theological belief, but historians can't require theological belief to do their work. Historians don't invoke miracles because it's beyond what historians can prove. Miracles may have happened in the past, but they're not a part of history. So that applies to the resurrection of Jesus. Historians acting as historians, whether they're believers or non-believers, acting as historians, they simply cannot say Jesus was probably raised by God from the dead. But historians can look at other parts of the resurrection traditions and see what and see whether they bear up historically. On the empty tomb of the resurrection, was Jesus put in the tomb three days later that tomb was found empty? 
Well, that's a historical question. The answer doesn't require any set of religious beliefs. You can simply look at the sources and draw some historical conclusions. Before I wrote this book and did the research on it, I was convinced as many people are that Jesus was given a decent burial. On the third day, the women went to the tomb and found an empty, and that started to believe in the resurrection. Apart from the fact that I don't think Jesus was given a decent burial, that he was probably thrown into a common grave of some kind, apart from that, I was struck in doing my research by the fact that the New Testament never indicates that people came to believe in the resurrection because of the empty tomb. This was a striking find because it was just commonly said that that's what led to the resurrection belief. But if you think about it for a second, it makes sense that the empty tomb wouldn't make anybody believe. If you put somebody in the tomb, three days later you go back and the body's not in the tomb, your first thought isn't, oh, he's been exalted to heaven and made the son of God. Your first thought is somebody stole the body or somebody moved the body or, hey, I'm at the wrong tomb. You don't think he's been exalted to heaven. In the New Testament, is striking that in the Gospels. The empty tomb leads to, leads to confusion, but it doesn't lead to belief. At least the belief is that some of the followers of Jesus had visions of him afterward. On why he's interested in studying Jesus' transformation. If Jesus had not been declared God by his followers, his followers would have remained a sect, S-E-C-T, within Judaism, a small Jewish sect. And if that was the case, it would not have attracted a large number of Gentiles. They had attracted a large number of Gentiles. They wouldn't have been the steady rate or the conversion over the first three centuries to Christianity. It would have been a small Jewish sect, S-E-C-T. If Christianity had not been a sizable minority in the empire, the Roman Empire, Roman Emperor Constantine almost certainly would not have converted. But then there wouldn't have been the masses of conversions after Constantine and Christianity would not have become the state religion of Rome. That hadn't happened. It would never have become the dominant religious cultural, political, social, economic force for the came so that we wouldn't have had, even had the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation, or Modernitism, you know, it all hinged on the claims that early Christians had that Jesus was God. Um, so now you understand why I struggle with religion. I'll read this one. Christ in context, Zealot's fourth life of Jesus, July 15, 2019, 302, etc. Writer and scholar Reza Aslan was 15 years old when he found Jesus. His secular Muslim family had fled to the U.S. from Iran and Aslan's relationship Adolescents attempt to fit into American life. My parents were certainly surprised, Aslan tells Fresh Air's Terry Grawl. As Aslan got older, he began his studies in the history of Christianity and he started to lose faith. He came to the realization that Jesus of Nazareth was quite different from the Messiah he'd been introduced to at church. I became very angry, he says. I became resentful. I turned away from Christianity. I began to really reject the concept of Christ. But Aslan continued his Christian scholarship and he found that he was increasingly interested in Jesus as a historical figure. The result is his new book, Salad, The Lifetimes of Jesus of Nazareth. A historical look at Jesus in the context of his time in Jewish religion and against the backdrop of the Roman Empire. Interview highlights on taking the Bible literally. 
The idea of literalism in the Bible is a very new phenomenon. In many ways, it's a product of a scientific revolution. When we sort of decided that that which is true is that which can be scientific, which can be scientifically verified. Well, that put into doubt the stories of the Bible, what we now refer to as quote-unquote fundamentalism, the belief this belief in the literal inherent nature of the Bible arose out of the scientific revolution on Jesus being just one of many messiahs. There were dozens of people walked through the Holy Land claiming to be the Messiah, curing the sick, exercising demons, challenging Rome, gathering followers. In a way, there's nothing unique about what Jesus did. In fact, many of these so-called false messiahs were known by name. Some of them were even more famous in their own lifetimes than Jesus was. They had more followers than Jesus did. And I'm fascinated is, what I'm fascinated by is that out of the dozen so-called messiahs in first century Palestine, only one of them is still called Messiah. On the crucifixion, there's only one reason to be crucified under the Roman Empire, that is for treason or sedition. Crucifixion, we have to understand, was not actually a form of capital punishment for Rome. In fact, it was often the case that the criminal would be killed first and then crucified. Crucifixion was in reality a deterrent. It was an obvious symbol to subject peoples of what happens when you defy the will of Rome, which is why crucifixions always had to happen in public places, at crossroads, on hills, at the entrance of cities. For that reason, crucifixion was a punishment reserved solely for the most extreme crimes, crimes against the state. And so that's why if we really want to know who Jesus was and what he meant, we should not start at the beginning of the story with him in a manger, but at the end of the story with him on a cross. Because if Jesus was in fact crucified by Rome, he was crucified for sedition. He was crucified because he challenged the Roman occupation. Um, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews in the city, the survivors were scattered to the winds. The Romans renamed Jerusalem in a sense. They wanted to create the impression that there were never any Jews to begin with in the city. This was a moment of deep psychic trauma for the Jews. What made it worse, however, is that as a result of the revolt, two days in the Roman Empire became a pariah. It became almost an illegal religion. Jews were not seen as a legitimate cult among the many, many other cults that existed within the Roman Empire. So for the Christians, they had a very obvious choice that they could maintain their connection to their Jewish parent religion and experience the same wrath of Rome that the Jews were experiencing. Of course, the Christians' experience of the wrath of Rome would come a little bit later, or they could refashion the story of Jesus and make him frankly less Jewish, make responsibility for his death on the shoulders of the Jews and not from the Roman Empire. And how Jesus saw himself. If you're asking whether Jesus expected to be seen as God made flesh as the living embodiment of the incarnation of God, then the answer to that is absolutely no. Such a thing could not exist in Judaism. In the 5,000 year history of Jewish thought, the notion of a God-man is completely anathema to everything Judaism stands for. The idea that Jesus could have conceived of himself or that even his followers could have conceived of him as divine contradicts everything that has everything said about Judaism as a religion. On an uncomfortable fact, almost every word ever written about Jesus was written by people who didn't actually know Jesus when he was alive. These were not people who walked with Jesus or talked with Jesus. These were not people who ate with him or prayed with him. The apostles were farmers and fishermen. These were illiterates. They could neither read nor write, so they couldn't really espouse Christology, high-minded theology about who Jesus was. They certainly couldn't write anything down. Instead, the task of spreading the gospel message outside of Jerusalem 
really creating what we know as Christianity fell to a group of urbanized, Hellenized, educated Jews in Dispara. And for the Romans having grown up immersed in this Hellenized, Romanized world, the concept of a god man was something quite familiar. Caesar Augustus was a god. What we really see in these 20 years after Jesus' death is this process whereby the Jewish religion based on a Jewish revolutionary becomes transformed into a Roman religion where Jesus is transformed from a Jewish conception of a Messiah to a kind of Roman demigod. I read this last NPR article, and I'll go to something else. It says, The Zealot tells the story of Jesus, the man at the Messiah, July 14, 2013, 8.04 a.m. East Coast time, heard on in edition Sunday. A religious scholar, um, Reza Asnan was 15, he went to an evangelical Christian camp. For the first time, he heard the gospel story, the story of Jesus. Profound experience for him, he immediately converted. But later, when Aslan went to college and began working toward a degree in the New Testament, he found he had doubts. The more I started studying the historical Jesus, the more the man who lived 2,000 years ago, the more I started to realize that there was this chasm between the historical Jesus and the Jesus that had been taught about in church, tells NPR's Rachel Martin. Aslan became more interested in Jesus, the man. Then Jesus the Messiah, and that's not the subject of the new book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. That person became so much more real to me than the celestial spirit that I've been introduced to in church, Aslan says. Interview highlights on the different ways to think about Jesus. There are billions of Christians in the world who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is living incarnation of God. And that's, per and that's a perfectly fine belief for whatever else he was, whether he was the Messiah or God or what have you. He's also a man, he was a human being. He was a man who lived in a specific time and era that was marked by the slow burn of a Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire. When understanding the context of the Gospels, in the year 66 Common Era, a Jewish revolt resulted in actually throwing Rome out of the Holy Land and keeping them at bay for three and a half to four long years. Of course, in 70 CE, the Romans returned and ended up destroying Jerusalem, burning the temple to the ground, slaughtering hundreds of thousands of Jews and scattering the rest of the winds. What I think is important for Christians to understand is that every gospel story written about Jesus of Nazareth was written after that event, this apocalyptic event which produced signals the end of the world as they knew it. On Jesus as a political figure, one story, Jesus walks into the temple, he begins to cleanse it. He turns over the tables to the money changers who, who were exchanging the foul foreign currency of the Roman Empire, of the Roman Empire with the Hebrew shekel, which is the only currency that the temple would accept. Then, of course, in a loud, booming voice, he says, It's written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, as all historians recognize, this was the action that precipitated his arrest, his torture, and his execution by the state. And there's a very simple reason for that. The temple is not just the center of the Jewish cult. It was, in many ways, the representation of the power and the presence of the Roman Empire. On using the Bible as a source, I see the scriptures of the whole I see the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament very much the same way that I see the scriptures of the Quran or the Gathas or the Vedas or what have you. I think that these scriptures are inspired by individuals who in a moment of metaphysical contact with the divine spirit have been able to communicate something about God to us. But also recognize as a historian that this is a sacred history. They're, they are valuable in the sense that they reveal certain truths to us, but, that, but the, that the facts that they reveal are not as valuable as the truths are. On his religious affiliations, I wouldn't call myself a Christian because I do not believe that Jesus is God. This is Aslan 
Uh, Reza Aslan saying this. This is him saying these things. On his religious affiliation, this is Rasa Aslan's religious affiliation. I wouldn't call myself a Christian because I do not believe that Jesus is God, nor do I believe that he ever thought that he was God, or that he ever said that he was God, but I'm a father of Jesus. And I think that sometimes, unfortunately, I think even Christians would recognize this in the mix. Those two things aren't always the same. Being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus. Amen to that. I wish we could say a women or a people because of gender sexual diversity. I just came up with that fly. But yes, those two things aren't always the same. Being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus. Yes. Yes. I have doubts about Jesus being God, but I'm a follower of Jesus. Despite the doubts, I follow the teachings. I buy by the teachings. That's how I grow. Um, and you understand my doubts because everything I just read to you previously. Uh, okay. Now I'm going to. Um, Read this. Response to Bill O'Reilly. Jesus didn't start a new religion. This is Bill O'Reilly disputed the two main points of my recent blog on Brad Kaya. My affirmation of Jesus' lifelong dedication to Judaism, meaning he did not start a new religion. Assertion that Renaissance art representations of Jesus omit his Jewish identity, thus falsified biblical history. By Bernard Starr, considered a college professor at Manchester City University of New York, psychologist journalist. July 18, 2014, 1946 a.m. Art representations of Jesus omit his Jewish identity, thus falsified biblical history. Art historians do not deny the absence of a Semitic Jewish Jesus in Renaissance artworks. However, they attribute the omissions to technical developments in art, such as the introduction of realism, naturalism, the Renaissance style of contemporizing figures and appearance, dress, and setting, the revival of Greek idealism but not to a theological justification that the omissions were accepted because Jesus started or converted to Christianity. Furthermore, the content of art was determined by the buyer's rich patrons who commissioned strictly Christianized art as confirmed by Renaissance art expert, Michael Beck Sandal. Is Bill O'Reilly saying in his rejection by critique of Renaissance art that the denial of Jesus' Jewish heritage and artworks is justified because Jesus was a Christian? If so, that's even more baffling since O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus, Disciples and Fathers of Just Jesus as Rabbi, right up to the crucifixion. I am puzzled by O'Reilly's belief in this of my commentary on the image of Jesus holding a crucifix staff. The depiction of Jesus by Renaissance artist Jan Swart Van Groningen is a blatant anachronism. Christianity did not exist in Jesus' lifetime, and the cross was hated and feared in the first century. The cross did not become a Christian symbol to the fourth century, and even that is a battle symbol, not a devotional object. As I stated in the article, the only cross that Jesus ever held was the one he was nailed to in his brutal crucifixion. Yet the visual statement of the painting that Jesus was a Christian is simply false. 
Furthermore, the term Christian does not appear in the Gospels, which chronicles Jesus' life and mission, but the word Jew has 82 mentions. And knowing the Gospels, does Jesus say he has rejected Judaism and is starting a new religion? The ideal time for Jesus to have announced a new religion, if he believed he had, was at his trial for blasphemy against Judaism before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the ruling by the ruling body of Judaism, only had jurisdiction over Jews and Jewish affairs. If the Sanhedrin could indict anyone for blasphemy against Judaism, all Roman pagans would have been charged. If Jesus had proclaimed, I'm not a Jew any longer, I'm a Christian, at the very least that would have initiated an interesting legal debate. But the issue of a new religion is never even hinted at in the Gospels. And if Jesus started a new religion, as all rather maintains, why didn't Jesus' disciples know that? After the crucifixion, the disciples led by Peter and Jesus' brother James continued to identify themselves as Jews and they worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Also, they gave Paul, who many claim was the actual founder of Christianity, a hard time for his defections from Orthodox Judaism. So many biblical scholars have noted that Jesus was a dedicated practicing Jew throughout his life, that it's surprising that Bill O'Reilly would insist otherwise. In my book, Jesus Uncensored, Restoring the Authentic Jew, I wrote about a discussion of Jesus, Judaism, and Christianity by a panel of three eminent biblical scholars at the Center for Jewish History in New York City. Father Donald, Father Donald Sr., President of the Catholic Theologian Union of Chicago, Anglican priest Dr. Bruce Shelton, author of Rabbi Jesus and Rabbi Jacob Noesner, author of numerous books on religion, including several about early Christianity, all agreed that Jesus was born and died a practicing Jew. Former Catholic priest James Crow in his book, Constantine Sword, goes a step further and fast forwarding Jesus to the present with this question. If Jesus were alive today, would he be one of those fervent black hatted um, figures doubling prayer at the Western Wall, the remnant of Herod's uh, Jerusalem temple? All that said, fact is that Jesus' life, teaching, and death did, did inspire new religion, but Jesus did not launch it. Also, if Jesus had explicitly defected from Judaism and had explicitly said he was starting a new religion, it's doubtful that he would have had any followers. And then we probably would have never heard of him or Christianity. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it would be better, more useful to celebrate the common ground of Judaism and Christianity rather than manufacturing divisive spins? Perhaps that's what Pope Francis was suggesting in the statement, inside every Christian is a Jew. When I started PhD psychologist, journalist, and professor emeritus at the City University of New York, Brooklyn College, he's the author of Jesus Uncensored, Restoring the Authentic and Organizing the Art Exhibit. Putting Judaism back in the picture toward healing the Christian slash Jewish divide, website JewishJesusArt.com. I really hope that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, you know, the Redeemer, all those things. Because, you know, my grandma gave me him, Jesus, as the way to live my life and it didn't time being abusive. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm also open to whoever is the Christ figure or Christ figures, whoever is God or gods. I'm open to all truths regarding those things. My answer is I don't know. I hope so. Okay. So I'm learning to do episodes that are shorter so I won't be so tired um,
other things I can mention off the top of my head. And I'll and I'll definitely uh, do that because I don't want to do too much. Um, Because I learned that doing too much can be problematic. So basically, I'll mention I mentioned a couple of things from each vision. But before I do that, I'm still thinking the best way. I'll do this way, then the other ways I'll just go for it. So Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. Rebecca Graff, January 2015, 2018. It's medium.com. Over time, truth and tradition picked up untruths along the way and turned them into hardcore beliefs. No one remembers the origins of the story behind it. They just accept this fact. As I grew older, I discovered a lot of what I've been told as a child was incorrect. Many things were based on superstition passed down from my grandparents and those before them. One of them was a popular belief in my religion. I always told that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That was far from the truth. The truth, according to Christian scriptures, Mary Magdalene was a businesswoman who was possessed by seven demons. Aside from that, we only know that she supported Jesus' ministry and traveled around with him as he taught. She was there at his death. This woman was one of the faithful who refused to let fear or uncertainty stop her from her love and belief in her Lord. The myth, tradition holds that Mary is a prostitute. She has also been attributed as the woman who was to be stoned after being caught with a married man. Reading the scriptures, one cannot tie either role to Mary Magdalene. The woman who was condemned to be stoned was pardoned by Jesus and never had a name given to her. She's just a woman who was found guilty of sin and then forgiven. Nowhere in Holy Scriptures can one find where Mary Magdalene is anything more than a successful woman who was plagued by demons. The source of the myth. So if one cannot find a reference to Mary's sinful life in scripture, how did the myth start? Started many years ago in the Catholic Church, remember that the vast majority of Christians were illiterate. They couldn't read the Bible for themselves. They relied on the priests and monks to tell them what it said. In order to help parishioners with the many Marys and Johns, priests began to connect them, even if there was no direct connection. It was common to hear Mary Magdalene referred to as the woman who's washed, who washed Jesus' feet or the one adulterous to be stoned. It was a pope who eventually made Mary a woman of the streets in 1591. Pope Gregory the Great gave a sermon where she said that Mary Magdalene's demons were her sins of the flesh. The Pope made several assumptions and cemented the apostle as a fallen woman. She remained such for hundreds of years. Religious leaders going forward never corrected the quote-unquote fact. Results of myths. So what if Mary was given an incorrect role? What harm does it? Well, first off, it is incorrect. Religious teaching should have foundation in the scriptures, not based on assumptions, but it goes much further than that. It reaches into the role of women even in our society today. We have to look at the period the events happening. There was a time in history where women were not highly regarded. They were valuable to provide heirs or to run a house, that was all. Their word meant nothing in the legal system and the gospels women were elevated to a new status. Their actions and words meant something. They were present at many major events that included Jesus. It was mostly women who stayed with him and risked it all when he died. It was a woman who was told to tell everyone that Jesus had risen from the dead and was alive. Her testimony of Mary Magdalene was taken as truth by the men she reported to. She was someone important despite being a woman. Now let's look at the period of the early Catholic Church when Pope Gregory made his false assumption. It was a time of women being subordinate once again in society. 
They had no voice. They were under the men. Women had no place in higher levels of society, even religion. That is one reason some have assumed so many of the religious texts from other Christianity that featured women were removed from the canon. The church had to remind society that women were flawed. Mary had to be a prostitute since she wasn't perfect like the Holy Virgin Mary. Women had to know their place. Today we can see that Mary Magdalene was a woman with all the flaws being a human comes with. We know she had troubles and found peace in Jesus Christ. She supported his ministry and was there to mourn him and support his mother as she watched him die. She was the first to be given the news that he was alive. While flawed, she was honored. She was no prostitute. She was a woman who humbled herself. So now you're finding out more reasons why I don't do Christianity, religion, or church because of the unfounded claims that they made. So, basically, there's pagan roots when it comes to the Christian traditions. I may do more episodes about this, um, but basically, um, I do longer episodes, but before I get to that, I want to briefly, not briefly, I want to mention the Catholic Church, right, in terms of abuse. I'm going to go off the top of my head as I flow with it. So you have priests shuffling, you have priests who are being moved to different churches. They know that boys and girls are being molested and raped by priests. But instead of enduring the lawsuit payments, you know, in terms of hiring an attorney and also if they lose a lawsuit, the payment, instead of trying to do all those things, they'll just shame um, people who are victims, that they victimized. It could be threats, it could be intimidation, it could be spreading rumors amongst congregations how awful you are. And the congregants blindly believing that you're a terrible person. And it could be excommunication like Jehovah's Witnesses. It could be stalking, intruding, harassment. It could be telling your employer if, if you're an adult. Um, you know, if you're an adult um, victim that you are doing these fake scandalous things but to make it real and employers don't want to hire you. It could be keeping you from doing church ministry ministries, thinking badly about you, not wanting to deal with you because the rumors that were spread by the perpetrators or by supporters of the perpetrators or indirect perpetrators, if you will. It could also um, have the following thing. Uh, said, for example, let's say you are in church, you get mean looks, people look at you funny, pointing at you, giggling, laughing at you, or saying mean things, or trying to perform exorcism on you, or 
trying to get you out the church. That is happening in the Catholic Church and other denominations. We also have cease and desist letters. We also have, they put you in front of the church and you have to apologize for adultery, not rape. And they say, well, the man was either tempted by the boy or the girl, or he tried to make the priest gay, or he tried to, you know, be the other woman. If you're a girl, this stuff happening Catholic Church. You got people reciting scripture while molesting people. You have people who are um, hundreds of people, hundreds of priests um, have been discovered globally. It could be in America, it could be outside of America. They say hundreds and hundreds of them. So a lot of them are dead, a lot of them are still alive. And if you're a survivor, you have mixed feelings, of course, because uh, trauma is multifaceted and multi-layered, of course. Um, some pursue lawsuits, some don't. Some pursue criminal charges, some don't, for a myriad of reasons. Um, There's countless reasons. Um, for that, because trauma impacts everybody differently. So yeah, some people fall in love with their with the rapist, and some don't for myriad of reasons. Some have Stockholm syndrome and defend the, the rapist, and most go to the other side and not defend the rapist at all. Everybody's different, right? They also have people who think right, this is normal. That other survivors go, I knew from the jump that this ain't normal at all. So in the Catholic Church, you have um, a lot of predator priests, not all of them. Most Catholics hate what's going on. And I think most priests aren't about their life, but you have a lot who are. You have a lot of congregants who support what's happening and they deny and deflect. Um, just like any other denomination, you have these issues, you have these situations. And, you know, I think I said applies to the other denominations and other religions. Um, for example, you know, the priest may rape you at church, it could be a sanctuary, it could be the pew, it could be the pulpit, it could be in the choir loft, it could be in the pastor's study, you know, it could be in the church office. It could be in the secretary's office, it could be it could be um in the priest's home, in the victim's home, outside by the bushes, it could be in a private location, a secluded region, it could be at a church gathering, they find a place to molest you. Um, this is me going off the top of my head, based on what I know, I'm doing my episodes like this, where I need to share more of what I know. But that's why I'm reading less, you know. Um, So very few of them are in prison. Most are still active and around. 
on the loose. Um, on rare occasions, the congregation actually believes in them. Some get counseling, some don't. Some get therapy, some don't. Some get psychiatry, some don't. Some die because of the rape. Some are still around for mirror Some have healthy views of sex. Some have distorted views of sex because of it. You know, so I'm upset. Um, these are the issues that are impacting the Catholic Church. Of course, I'll give more details. I just want to explain the reasons why I'm no longer uh, a person in the piety universe. So I like to uh, tell the truth about that. Basically, um, I try to keep things as simple and plain as I can. Um, I do longer episodes about this in the future. I'm just giving you synopsis. Please to bear with me. So And now I want to talk about some of the pagan roots of Easter. I'll do longer episodes later, but I just want to talk about um, this. The pagan roots of Easter have been Dougal from Ashtar to Esotor. The roots of the resurrection story go deep. We should embrace the pagan symbolism of Easter. Easter is a pagan festival. If Easter isn't really about Jesus, then what is it about? Today we see a secular culture celebrating the spring equinox, while religious culture celebrates the resurrection. However, early Christianity made a pragmatic acceptance of ancient pagan practices, most of which we enjoy today at Easter. The general symbolic story of the death of the sun, actually the sun on a cross, the constellation of the southern cross and his rebirth, Overcoming the powers of darkness was a well-known story of the ancient world. There were plenty of parallel rival resurrected saviors too. The Sumerian goddess Anana or Eshtar was hung naked on the stake, but subsequently resurrected and ascended from the underworld. One of the oldest resurrection myths is Egyptian Horus, born on December 25th, December. Horus and his damaged eye became symbols of life and rebirth. Mithras was born on what we now call Christmas Day and his father celebrated the spring equinox. Even as late as the 4th century AD, the sole Evictus associated with Mithras was the last green pagan cult the church had to overcome. Dionysus was a divine child resurrected by his grandmother. Dionysus also brought his mom, Simone, back to life. An ironic twist, the Cybele cult flourished on today's Vatican Hill. Cybele's lover, Addis, was born of a virgin, died and was reborn annually. 
This spring festival began as a day of blood on Black Friday, rising to a crescendo after three days of rejoicing of the resurrection. There was a violent conflict on Vatican in the early days of Christianity between the Jewish worshippers and pagans who called over whose God was the truth, just the imitation. What is interesting to note here is that in the ancient world, wherever you had popular resurrected god myths, Christianity found lots of converts. So eventually, uh, Christianity came to a accommodation within the pagan spring festival. Although we see no celebration of Easter in the New Testament, early church fathers celebrated it. And today, many churches are offering sunrise services at Easter, an obvious pagan solar celebration. The date of Easter is not fixed, but instead it's governed by the phases of the moon. How pagan is that? All the fun things about Easter, all of the fun things about Easter are pagan. Bunnies are left over from the pagan festival Eostor, a great northern goddess whose symbol was a rabbit or hare. Exchange of eggs is an ancient custom celebrated by many cultures. Hot cross buns very ancient too. In the Old Testament, we see the Israelites baking sweet buns for an idol, and religious leaders trying to put a stop to it. The early church clergy also tried to put a stop to sacred cakes being baked at Easter. In the end, in the face of defiant cake baking pagan women, they gave up and blessed the cake instead. Easter is essentially a pagan festival which is celebrated with cards, gifts, and over tea. Novelty Easter Easter products because it's fun and ancient symbolism still works. Those struggling with the power of nature in the longer days are often most felt in modern towns and cities. Where we set off to work without putting on our car headlights and when our alarm clock goes off in the morning, the streetlights outside are not still on because of the darkness. A better way to celebrate than to bite the head of off the bunny goddess, go to a sunrise, get yourself a sticky-footed, fluffy chicken, stick it on your TV whilst helping yourself to a hefty slice of pagan seminal cake. Happy Easter, everyone! So this is more reasons why I don't do um, religious faith. Because I was taught that Easter, you know, this was Saturday, April 3rd, 2010, 9 o'clock East Coast time. Well, okay, cool. This is theguardian.com. But I was taught that Easter was something that Christians did to rejoice in Jesus being back after he was murdered, assassinated, if you will. But I found that a lot of things about Christianity are unoriginal. It was taken before the Christians tried to make it Christian. I'm like, wow. So Easter is not Christian. So they're celebrating something pagan, but they call people pagans who they say are non-Christians. So are they being unholy by celebrating Easter? And rabbits don't lay eggs. They never have. This is Biblical literacy and spiritual literacy ruining its its ugliest head on this one. Wow. So, okay, it gets worse. So, Emperor Constantine came up with Christmas while we celebrate Christmas today. Francis Naya Kandi, it's in front of 2019. Yes, it's Christmas again. The formalities are taking place. People have decorated trees, brought new clothes, visited friends and places, and kids are waiting. Santa to come down the chimney with many presents from their wish list, so on and so forth. How did Christmas come to be? Is Santa for real? Well, there are many versions to the story. 
Well, there's a Roman emperor called Constantine, and during his reign, it's believed that they faced tons of challenges due to the persecution of Christians by former imperonic regimes. Constantine, being a politician, he was decided to change the pagan Roman holiday Sartinelia to Christmas to impress the Christians. See, Christmas is pagan. This is proof. Sartinelia was a day when the Romans celebrated their god Saturn, whom they believed ruled the world, was also described as the god of agriculture. This explains the exchange of greener and other farm gods. As a matter of fact, most of the Christian, as a matter of fact, most of the Christmas rituals done today are a carbon copy of are a carbon copy of Sartinalia was celebrated. Exchange of gifts, singing, merry making, decorating of trees, decorating of trees, etc. Sartinalia was usually celebrated from December 17th of the Julian calendar and went on up to December 25th. So Constantine decided to turn this pagan holiday to Christmas. To celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ. However, the exact date of the birth of Jesus is not really known and has been a topic for debate for many years. How Constantine established that date to be the birth of Jesus Christ, I don't know, but understand it was imperative for Constantine to do that too in the hearts of the already growing number of Christians in his jurisdiction. See, this is, it's, I, I can't. I can't. I'm like, this is so horrible horrible because jesus didn't establish christmas constantine did more reasons why my religious disillusionment just never stops skyrocketing <sighs> and it was all political not spiritual I, wow. Wow. Um, Mama's done, y'all. Okay. <sighs> Trying to see if this is even... I read a couple of things, so... Gift delivering mythical beings. Sure, we've all heard of Santa Claus, who had his roots in the Dutch Santa Claus mythology, with a few elements of Odin and Saint Nicholas thrown in for good measure. How many people heard of La Bifana, the kindly Italian witch who drops off treats for well-behaved children, or Frau Hall, who gives gifts to women at the time of the winter solstice? Throughout the world, gift giving mythical beings are part of local traditions. So that's gift giving mythical beings. That's Nine Christmas traditions with pagan roots, and then, hmm, okay, gift giving presents. Today, Christmas is a huge gift giving, gift giving bonanza for retailers far and wide. However, that's a fairly new practice developed within the last two to three hundred years. Most people celebrate Christmas associated with the practice of gift giving with the biblical tale of the three wise men who gave gifts of gold. Frankincense and merch and newborn baby Jesus. However, the tradition can also be traced back to other cultures. The Romans gave gifts between Saturnalia and the Calends during the Middle Ages. French nuns gave gifts of food and clothing to the poor on St. Nicholas Eve. Interestingly, up until around the early 1800s, most people exchanged gifts on New Year's Day. It was usually just one present rather than a massive collection of gifts typically given today. Um.
See, this is proof. Okay, I got one more. For those who celebrate the spiritual aspects of Christmas, there is significant symbolism in the holy bush. For Christians, the red berries represent the blood of Jesus Christ who died upon the cross, and the sharp-edged green leaves are associated with his crown of thorns. However, in pre-Christian pagan cultures, the, whole, the holly, holly, the holly bush, holly was associated with the god of winter, the holly king, during his annual battle with the oak king. Holly was known as a wood that could drive off evil spirits as well, so it came in handy during the dark half of the year when most of the other trees were bare. See, Christmas is pagan, so I've been sinning by doing something Constantine said and not what Jesus himself said. That is the question. Um, okay. I'm only going to read about what's important. The surprising origins of the Trinity doctrine. Ooh, this one get really, 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 really contentious. Um, Debate over the nature of God, the Council of Nicaea. Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 as much for political reasons to unity and empire as religious ones. As religious ones, the primary issue at the, at the time came to be known as the Arian controversy. In the hope of securing for his throne the support of the growing body of Christians, he had shown them considerable favor to his, to his interests as a church. Vigorous and united, the Arian controversy was threatening its unity and menacing its strength. He therefore undertook to put an end to the troubles. A suggestion, perhaps by the Spanish bishop Colsius, who was influential at court, that if a synod were to meet representing the whole church, both east and west, it might be possible to restore harmony. Constantine himself, of course, neither knew nor cared anything about the matter in dispute, but he was eager to bring the controversy to a closing. Colsius' advice appealed to him as sound Arthur Kashmir McGurfit, a history of Christian thought, 1954, volume 1, page 158. Arius, a priest from Alexandria, Egypt, thought that Christ, because he's the Son of God, was at the beginning and therefore was a special creation of God. Further, if Jesus was the Son of the Father, his necessity must be older. Posting the teachings of Arius was Anathanasius, a deacon also from Alexandria. His view was an early form of Trinitarianism, wherein the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were one at the same time distinct from each other. The decision as to which view the church council itself was to a large extent arbitrary. Karen Armstrong explains in the history of God and the bishops gathered I see on May 2325 to resolve the price very few were shared and Athanasius. So his name is Athanasius, his view of Christ. Most had a position midway between in a Athanasius and Arius, page 110. As Emperor Crossing was in the unusual position of deciding church doctrine, even though he was not really a Christian. This fo the following years when he had both his wife and son murdered, as previously mentioned. Okay, historian Henry Chavik says, Constantly like his father, worshipped the unconquered son, the early church, 1993, page 122. As to the emperor's embrace of Christianity, Chavik is his conversion should not be interpreted as an inward experience of grace. It was a military matter. His comprehension of Christian doctrine was never really very clear, page 125. Chatwick does say that Constantine's deathbed baptism itself implies no doubt about his Christian belief. It's being common for rulers to put off baptism 
to avoid accountability for things like torture and executing criminals, page 127. But this justification doesn't really help the case for the emperor's conversion being genuine. Norbit Brox, a professor of church history, explains that Constantine was never actually a converted Christian. Constantine did not experience any conversion. There are no signs of a change of faith in him. He never said of himself that he had turned to another god at the time when he turned to Christianity. For him, that was so invictus. The victorious sun god, a concise history of the early church, 1996, page 48. When it came to 19 councils, the Encyclopedia Britannica states, Constantine himself presided, actively guided discussions, and personally proposed the crucial form of expressing the relation of Christ to God in the creed issued by the council. Overawed by the emperor, the bishops with two exceptions only signed the creed, many have been much against their information. 1971 edition, volume 6, Constantine, page 386. With the emperor's approval, the council rejected the minority view of Arius and having nothing definitive with which to replace it, approved the view of Athanasius. Also, minority view. The church was left in the opposition of, of officially supporting from that point forward. The decision made it Nicaea to endorse the belief held by only a minority of those attending. The groundwork for official acceptance of the Trinity was now laid, but it took more than three centuries after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for this unbiblical teaching to emerge. And it basically talks about the now constantly facing the challenge. Research researcher Karen Armstrong explains the nature of God that the first problem that had to be solved was the doctrine of God, a new danger rose from within, which split Christians into bitterly warring camps. 1993, page 106. As an emperor appeared of great tumult within the Roman Empire, Constantine was challenged with keeping the empire unified. He recognized the value of religion in uniting his empire. This was, in fact, one of his primary motivations in accepting and sanctioning the quote, quote, the Christian religion, which by this time had drifted far from the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles and his Christian in name only. Constantine, although he helped by many to be the first quote, quote, Christian Roman emperor, was actually a son worshiper, was only baptized on his deathbed. During his reign, he had his eldest son and his wife murdered. He was also vehemently anti Semitic, referring in one of his edicts to the detestable Jewish crowd. And the customs of these most wicked men, customs that were in fact written in the Bible and practiced by Jesus and apostles. He is even anti-Semitic towards the Jewish Jesus of Nazareth. A classic example of this was a dispute over the nature of Christ that led the Roman emperor, Constantine the Great, to convene the Council of Nicaea in modern-day Western Turkey in AD 325. I'm going to conclude with this. I've done this article before, but I'm going to do it again. It's very short. After this, you'll fully understand why I am done with Christianity, religion, church, and all house of worship, all religions forever. The odysseyonline.com. Jesus didn't start Christianity. Constantine did. Christianity is the religion of the Roman Empire, not of Jesus Christ and his apostles by Davian Brown, Millennials of New Jersey, June 17, 2019. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died for the sins of the world and rose on the third day, didn't start the religion of Christianity. There, I said it. Before you start reading this article out of pride, arrogance, ignorance, and the lack of historical knowledge, 
Allow me to elaborate. If an individual were to ask a Christian what is their religion, they would most likely say Christianity. But where in the Bible did but where in the Holy Bible did Jesus Christ ever say that he started a religion called Christianity? Many historians claim that Jesus started this religion, but that's a false accusation from the Son of God, because Jesus Christ didn't establish a religion that contradicts his word. Jesus Christ, who came out of the tribe of Judah, came unto the children of Israel to be the final sacrifice. And a time of blessings that permitted the Israel rejected Jesus and didn't accept him as their Messiah, even though he fulfilled all of the, all of the prophecies that were prophesied about him all throughout the Old Testament. However, the results of Israel's rejection towards the Lord Jesus was that they crucified him, but Jesus Christ inevitably rose on the third day and ascended unto the Father. However, even though there was enough proof in the pudding that Jesus Christ, the Almighty God, manifested in the flesh to save them from their sins, they still rejected Jesus Christ. Not only was his physical presence rejected, but also the message of the gospel was also rejected when Jesus ascended into heaven. Ultimately, the apostles whom Jesus sent out to preach the gospel preached the message of the cross of the Jews, but they still rejected the message, which made them stone the apostles and even put some in prison. This is what allowed the apostles to offer the message of the cross to the Gentiles. Many of them received it gladly. However, do not think that I'm attempting to state that only the children of Israel are meant to be saved, because that's not the truth. The children of Israel's heart were essentially hard for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. Before the foundation of the earth, God knew that a salvation plan was for the Jew, Gentile, Greek, and anybody who desired to be born again set free from their sins. The gospel and doctrine that Jesus left with his apostles were never called Christianity, and the foundation of belief of today's modern Christianity doesn't even align with biblical beliefs. Jesus never came to start a new religion, but rather he came to fulfill the law of Moses so we could have an atonement in the blood to cover our sins. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 states, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. But the real question is, what were the apostles and early Christians' faith that some would say religion called? The name of the faith that the early Christians went by can be seen in Jude chapter 1, verse 20, which stated, But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith. The only faith and religion that Christians should be classifying themselves under is holiness. That's because it's written in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, stating simply it's written, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. All born-again believers should be following holiness, not man-made religions that will lead to hell. Holiness is a lifestyle that demands obedience, sacrifice, and endurance to please the Lord Jesus Christ. God never claimed the religion of quote-unquote Christianity or quote-unquote Mormonism or quote-unquote Baptist or any other religion under the sun, but holiness alone. Since Jesus didn't create Christianity, where did Christianity originate from when he created it? The truth is that it came from the Roman Empire. In 312 AD, the Emperor of Rome, who was, which was Constantine, made the most controversial and impactful decision. Emperor Constantine converted his empire from paganism to his new religion called quote-unquote Christianity. And under the umbrella was the Roman Catholic Church. Constantine called his belief Christianity, but Jesus and the apostles never called their faith that. And the reason is because Constantine's religion had absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus taught. Constantine's Christianity is controversial in the original beliefs and doctrines of the apostles because it went against everything they stood for and died for. Ancient Christianity was based off of the utilization of animal scriptures and a bunch of paganism. The re this religion that Constantine created that's still being practiced not only by Catholics but by many Protestants is actually astonishing. The religion of Christianity believes in a trinity, which is what they say to be one God existing through many gods at the same time, which comes from the pagan belief of the mother God, son of God, and father God. Constantine's quote-unquote Christianity and quote-unquote Catholic doctrine was 100% demonic and not of God. The idolatry and paganism incorporated within their beliefs shifted their beliefs from worshiping Jesus, the only true God, to worshiping Mary, their other two members of their trinity, and the saints. 
wasn't only the Catholic Church who were corrupt, everyone included in the new religions that were formed from Christianity that came from the Protestant Reformation or its denomination. These new denominations that were formed are all offshoots of the Catholic Church. Many different beliefs, doctrines, and divisions were formed from the Protestant Reformation. And believe it or not, this Reformation wasn't of God. God is not a God of confusion and didn't intend for there to be many different religions or denominations that claim they're all quote-unquote Christian but deny him in their doctrinal beliefs. Truthfully, the religion of quote-unquote Christianity in which Constantine found it wasn't built on the true teachings of Jesus Christ and neither were the, and neither were the denominations that came out of it. The only true teaching of religion is holiness within holiness. One must be following the body of the apostles' teachings Apostles of teachings in which includes the belief in one God, not a trinity, repentance, baptism, name of Jesus, and filling of the Holy Spirit, most importantly, living a life of holiness and obedience to God. To conclude, the only doctrine which man can be saved is through the true teachings of the apostles, not this man-made trash. Fulfilling the apostles' faith in the true religion of his holiness contains no loss of inheritance. If anyone who's reading this has repented of their sins, been baptized in the name of Jesus and received the Spirit of Christ, the inheritance of the kingdom of God is ours because we stood in the true doctrine that many false prophets have tried to corrupt and take us away from through vain teachings of a trinity and many other false beliefs that contradict the Bible and are damnable. Religion of Christianity has beliefs that are anti-Bible don't adhere to biblical teachings and if one rejects these false teachings that is taught, they are labeled as not being a part of Christianity. But I'm here to say I'm proud to be a bold advocate for the doctrine preached by the apostles in the way in which they follow it, which is holiness. As the Bible says in Matthew chapter 23, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, working of all of you. This was a Christian. This was a follower of Jesus writing this, David Brown. He wouldn't call himself a Christian. I had to correct myself. So he says, Christianity is the religion of the Roman Empire, not of Jesus Christ and the apostles. David Brown is a follower of Jesus. He's a disciple of Jesus, and he lives under holiness. So I had to correct myself on that. So now, you know, now I'm going to talk more about the abuse, man. Basically, you got people thinking that, um, many people are thinking that abuse is sanctioned by God. How uh, if you're a person of God, then you can do whatever sins you want. And they're not really sins because you're of the cloth. And if, you, if you're not of the cloth, it's sins. So you have that going on. You have many people who monkey see monkey do when it comes to church to um, church leaders we're talking about the congregation so that's why they vilify and demonize uh, abuse victims and glorify magnify abusers so um, that's all I wanted to say now I know all the reasons why I'm forever done with religion church and Christianity, as well as explaining my religious disillusion, institutionally speaking.